I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. For those just joining us today, uh, just completing, con- concluding a series of messages this morning on our mission and our vision over the last uh, three weeks prior and today's week four. Uh, we, we've walked through uh, our mission statement, Making Jesus Known. We looked at the Great Commission, Matthew 28, Jesus' call for us to go and make disciples, baptizing them in His name, the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything He has commanded. And behold, He will be with us. He who has all authority will be with us to that end. That is the mission for which we have been left here as His people, to make Jesus known, to make disciples. And so uh, we want to be faithful in what He's called us to and live that out. Uh, what would that look like as we, uh, as we engage in that mission? It, it looks like uh, we, we would be men and women who are growing in three ways. That's what our vision spells out, that we'd be growing deeper in intimacy with Christ, to love Jesus more, to know Him more, to follow Him more faithfully in, in light of all that Christ has done. Also, last week we looked at that it will mean that we grow closer in relationships with one another. Christ is not in the business of populating heaven with a bunch of individuals. He is forming a people. And so we are called into, we are, as when we come to faith in Christ, we are brought into the people of God, the church, not universally, but also locally, and we are called to love one another, to serve one another, that in fact, we belong to one another. We belong to Christ, we belong to one another. You are not your own. This morning we come to the final piece of our vision. As we live out our mission, we will be men and women. Our, we see us becoming increasingly bold for Christ as we live on mission for those who don't know Jesus. And so that's where we're going this morning. And I want us to think about the source of that boldness. If we're going to be men and women, young and old, who are growing more bold for Christ, what is the source of of that boldness. I want to begin with a story. Uh, This happened a number of years ago. Some of you will have heard this, I'm sure, but uh, a number of years ago, I I had done some renovations in our upstairs washroom and uh, had some insecurity around some of the plumbing things, particularly that I had done. Uh, I had not done a lot of plumbing before that. And so one day when Brennan ran upstairs from the basement and said, Dad, there's water on the floor downstairs, uh, sure enough, I went downstairs and there was water, and, and I discovered that it was dripping out of, oddly enough, a, a heat duct that was right under the washroom upstairs where I had done some renovations not too long before that. I, again, I had, I had done some plumbing in the wall. I was pretty insecure about some of what I had done. In fact, when I'd completed the renovation, one of the pipes in the shower had burst. I had to break through the wall and repair it, and so there was this this angst, this insecurity. And not only that, I had tiled and I had discovered after I had completed tiling that I had, I had used the wrong backer board. I'd used this foam board that was meant for walls. And so I had visions as the water's dripping out of this heat duct that, that my plumbing was leaking and this, this foam board was soaking wet and it was, it was going over to the, the floor drain and dripping down into our, our ducting and into the basement. And just this, ugh. What have I done? What kind of mess? What kind of screw-ups? Where is this water? And I began trying to find where is this water coming from. I, I, I ended up ripping some of the tiles off the floor, you know, taking out my work, and, and it seemed dry. It seemed like that wasn't the issue. But, you know, Brennan 
Brennan would, every once in a while, he'd be the one that would remind me, and I'd like, okay, Brennan, when, when you find the water, what happened? You know, he, well, I flushed the toilet, and I'm like, okay, how are you sitting on it? He's just a little boy at the time, and I, I was just racking my brain. I already ripped out half the floor, and then I thought, maybe the water's coming down. Maybe the source of the water is, is from the, the plumbing pipes, the, 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 the vent, the plumbing vent. And so I ripped open the drywall, and no, that was completely dry. I began taking down ductwork in the basement and, and just trying to find where could this come from. I called a roofing contractor to come look at my roof. I called another contractor to come. I, I called a plumbing heating guy, came and looked, and, and sure, my, my ductwork was filled with water in different places, and I could not figure out where was this coming from. By the end of this, I had ripped half the bathroom apart. The wall was open. The floor was gone. There was no ductwork there. And, and, and it stopped for about a week. There was nothing. It was dry. And I thought, maybe it was just from this massive storm that we had somehow. I don't know where it came from or how it got there, but maybe that's where the water was from. But a week after this problem seemed to have solved itself, Brendan came running upstairs. Dad, Dad, there's water downstairs again. Sure enough, I went, and there's this big puddle under the heat vent, except there's no heat vent there, right? I've taken all the ductwork down. There's no floor there except for plywood. And I went and I looked and I thought, there's only one explanation. There's only one possible source of this water. And I called Brennan into the washroom. I said, Brennan, have you been pouring water into the vent? And he said, no. And I said, Brennan, tell me the truth now. I found the source. <laughs> this morning, we're talking about boldness and, and what I want us to focus on, what I want us to look for is the source of the boldness that we envision our lives to be characterized by. Where does this boldness come from? We are going to be looking at a story in the book of Acts uh, just to help you uh, locate this story. It, it happens after Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus has been condemned to death, killed on a cross, buried, and, and then Jesus came out of the grave. God raised him from the dead. The disciples, not only the 12, but the, 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 the 11 of the 12, uh, not only have they seen Jesus, but, but other followers of Jesus have seen the resurrected Jesus. Jesus has ascended to heaven to his Father's side and uh, Pentecost has happened. God has poured out his spirit, and those who follow Christ have grown. There's about 3,000 now following Jesus, who have put their faith in Jesus. Uh, in Acts 3, the chapter before, uh, the chapter we're going to look at, Acts chapter 4, Peter and John, the disciples, the followers of Jesus, are gathering in the temple courts daily and uh, preaching about Jesus. Peter and John are on their way to the temple, and they come across a, a, a man who's begging. He's lame. He's, he's in his 40s. He's never walked a day in his life. He's been lame from birth. And they come along, and uh, he looks up at them, and he's expecting to get something from them. And they say to him, silver or gold, Peter says, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Walk. And, and, and Peter takes him by the hand, and he helps him to his feet. For the first time in his life, this man can walk. He can stand. He begins jumping around. He is so delighted, and the crowds are in awe. They know this man. They have seen this man. For four decades, he's been sitting at this gate, unable to walk, born lame. 
And there's this amazing miracle happens, and he he's, goes into the temple with Peter and John, and he's jumping around, like for the first time. Imagine that, jumping for the first time. Just filled with delight, and the crowds are amazed. This is causing a huge uproar in the temple. People are in awe, praising God, filled with wonder. And Peter preaches to the crowds there, declaring to the crowds that, that this has happened, that this is from Jesus, that it's not by their own power, but it's Jesus. And he calls those who hear to repent and to believe Jesus so that refreshing may come from the Lord. Crowds are amazed. Another couple thousand people put their faith in Jesus. The church is growing. The people of God is growing. But the Jewish religious leaders react otherwise. Think about it. Just a, a matter of a number of weeks earlier, they had conspired to get rid of Jesus. Jesus was, was messing with things. They wanted to get rid of him, and so they conspired and convicted him. They, they got the Romans involved because they weren't allowed to put anyone to death. They, they got Rome to kill Jesus for them. They thought they had solved this Jesus problem, only no, because... Now his disciples are saying that Jesus is alive and, and there's this huge new uproar, this commotion. These men are proclaiming that Jesus is alive and this healing has happened and they can't deny it. This man is there and everyone knows and everyone's amazed. And, and, and so rather than making this Jesus problem go away, things have gotten worse. So they, they arrest Peter and John, put them in jail. It's late in the day and they sleep on it as leaders. Like, what, what are we going to do? And we pick up the story in, in chapter 4, verse 5, the next morning. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to follow along as I read, beginning in chapter 4, verse 5. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved." When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. 
After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. I want to ask four questions of our text this morning with you. What is it they declare? What is it they exhibit What is it they face and how do they respond? The followers of Jesus, the disciples of Jesus, those who put their faith in Jesus. What do they declare? What do they exhibit? What do they face and how do they respond? Question one is what do they declare? Peter and John, think about this, fetched from jail. They've spent what I'm sure is their first night in jail. These guys are not criminals. They were fishermen. And then Jesus called them. They've been following this Jewish rabbi around for three years. Like, that's their life. They get locked up. And the following morning, they're brought before the rulers, the elders, the teachers of the law. They're brought before the Sanhedrin, the highest body of leadership, of authority in Israel, aside from Rome, who rules the day. I'll say more about that in a moment. This is the same group that convicted Jesus, said that Jesus, just in a matter of uh, weeks, a couple months earlier, said that Jesus deserved to die. They, they were complicit in that, turning him over to the Romans to be crucified. And, and so we, we need to wonder what must have been going through their minds. Was history about to repeat itself? They've seen this script. There are two important things that Peter and John declare. They're, they're hauled out of prison. And the first thing they declare comes in response to the question that is asked of them. They are asked, by what power or what name did you do this? Referring, of course, to the healing of this man who had been lame for over 40 years. The Sanhedrin is the highest Jewish authority. Okay, Rome rules the day. Rome has ultimate political power. But they have given the Jews a certain level of autonomy over their religious life. And so this body of 70 highly trained Powerful Jewish leaders have gathered. And before this group of 70 are these two men, Peter and John, simple, formerly fishermen. Now, they have caused a significant stir in Jerusalem, in the temple courts. They're going daily. They are proclaiming Jesus as resurrected, no longer dead. They're proclaiming that Jesus was put to death, but now has been raised, and that through faith in him, people can be saved, they can be brought into a right relationship with God. Now think about it. These two men are standing before this, this legal body, this group of leaders, 
These two men, Peter and John, are not, they're not on the approved preacher's list, if you will. They're not highly trained. They're not really trained at all, other than through their experience with Jesus, certainly not formal training. They're, they're low-class Galileans. They're, they're blue-collar workers, these guys. And here they're preaching the name of Jesus in the temple, the center, the heart of, of Israel's religious life, and crowds are flocking to them. Not only are they preaching in Jesus' name, but they have now performed this miraculous sign. This man is healed, and the religious leaders, the ones with authority, can't deny it. They know it. He's standing right there with them. And so they have a problem. They were trying to get rid of this Jesus thing. They're the ones that are supposed to draw the crowd. They're supposed to be the ones who are exercising power and authority. And so they ask, by what power, in what name, by what authority have you done this? And Peter responds, rulers, elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you. They declare that authority, that power, comes from Jesus. Remember, we looked at Matthew 28 uh, a few weeks ago. Jesus said there, I have all authority. All authority is his authority. And Peter and John declare that now before the authorities, the religious authorities of Israel, all authority, the authority, the power for this miracle, this sign, is Jesus' power. It's his authority. Though they tried to get rid of him by having him killed, it didn't work because Jesus didn't stay dead. All authority, this authority is his. It's from him. The power to heal is the power of Jesus. Though operative through them, it was not their power. It was the power of Jesus. There is a second thing that uh, Peter and John declare, and that is the exclusivity of Christianity, of the Christian faith. They say this in verse 12, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Now, let me just say this. This is one of the things that makes Christianity so horribly offensive in our world today. This claim of exclusivity. This claim that salvation is found only in Jesus, not uh, not every other religious faith, not in any other ideological view. Salvation is found in Jesus alone, and that is horribly offensive. But I do want to note two things. First, it is not only Christianity that makes this claim of exclusivity. If you look at other world faiths, world religions, the same would be true of adherence of those faiths. For example, Tim Keller tells a story when he was invited to be a part of a, a panel uh, before a local college. Uh, he was the Christian pastor. There was also a Muslim imam and a Jewish rabbi there. And they were asked to describe the differences uh, between their religions, between their faiths. And Keller writes this, that all three of them agreed to this statement. I'll read it. If Christians are right about Jesus being God, then Muslims and Jews fail in a serious way to love God as God really is. But if Muslims and Jews are right that Jesus is not God, but rather a teacher or a prophet, then Christians fail in a serious way to love God as God really is. The Jewish rabbi, the Muslim imam, and Tim Keller, Christian pastor, all could agree to that. Like, we have radically different views about Jesus. In fact, 
Bob Roberts, who is a Baptist pastor in Texas, he is engaged deeply in building friendships with uh, people in Islam and with imams. And he uh, described once a setting where he and an imam had gathered before people to talk about, to explore the differences in their faith. And as he began, it was so refreshing to hear this imam and, and Bob Roberts agree. Bob said, okay, just so we know, if what I believe is true about Jesus, then you, he says to the imam, then you're going to hell. And if what you believe about Jesus is true, then, then I'm going to hell. Let's, let's be honest about the radical different views of Jesus. We cannot say, and though people in our world say, well, all religious faiths saying the same. No, and adherents of those will know that the claim of exclusivity is not unique to Christianity. And so we, we need to hear that. Even those who have no faith and have an atheistic view, their view, their, each worldview, each perspective is exclusive if we look at it logically. Second, I want to note this, that Christianity, though it certainly makes this claim to exclusivity, that you can only find salvation in Jesus... It is also true that Christianity at its core provides the impetus to welcome all, to love all, to care for all, to invite all people to come to Jesus, even, uh, even enemies. Uh, why is that? Why is it that Christianity has that impetus? Because at the heart of the Christian faith is Jesus, who gave his life, who died on a cross for enemies. While we were God's enemies, while we were far from Him, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And so at the very heart of Christianity is the recognition that all of us stand in need of Christ. And so there is simply no room within Christianity for arrogance or looking down our noses at anyone else. No matter who we're talking to, all of us stand equally in need of God's mercy and grace. And the invitation of Christianity is to all, come to Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus God's own Son, who came to earth, who suffered in our place, who paid the penalty for our sin. And through faith in Him, the Bible tells us that we are forgiven, we are cleansed, we are washed. Not only that, but we are clothed with the perfection, with the righteousness of Christ, so that we stand justified and holy before God the Father through His Son, Jesus. That is the message of Scripture, and it is an invitation that goes out to all. Come to Jesus. And so if you are with us this morning, if you are listening this morning, and you have never put your faith in Jesus, I invite you even today, trust in Jesus. Christianity is not about cleaning yourself up. It's not about behaving in a certain way so that you're right with God. It's, it's about getting right with God through trusting in Christ as your only hope, as my only hope. And from that place of being redeemed, of being adopted, of then learning to live out that new reality, and we will stumble and fall and scrape our spiritual knees, but we rest in Christ's finished work. That is the message. That is the invitation of Christianity. So if you don't know Jesus, I invite you to come to Him. Put your trust in Him. There is Salvation is found in no one else but Jesus. That is the second declaration here, made so clearly by Peter and John. Now, there is something I want to say. There's, there's much more that could be said on this, and I want to commend to you if you want to dig into this to read the first chapter of Tim Keller's book, Reason for Faith. It's entitled, There Can't Be Just One True Religion, where 
Tim tackles a lot of the objections and helps you think through. It's a great resource if you want to do some more digging. But, but I do want to say uh, one more thing here. Peter declares this so clearly. The exclusivity of Christ. That salvation is found in no other name but Jesus. Recent research just came out weeks ago. Canadian research on the Canadian church. I just want to read two of the stats that came out of that that are troubling. 46 to 48% of church leaders who work with children and youth say it is wrong to share one's faith with someone in the hopes that they will one day identify as Christian. 31% of church leaders in Canada now in 2021 say it is wrong to share their Christian beliefs with someone of a different religion or no religion with the hopes that they will one day identify as Christian. How can that be? If we have surrendered our lives to Christ, if we understand this to be the Word of God, if we read this and see this, Peter and John saying salvation is found in no one else but Jesus. How can these things be? We, we need to hold to the truth of God's word, that salvation truly is found in no one but Jesus, and that needs to shape us as his people. We need to look with the eyes of faith and say, those apart from Christ need Christ. I want to see them come to know Christ because salvation is found in no one else, in no other name. Some of you are familiar with Penn Gillette. He's an atheist, illusionist, and comedian, and he writes these sobering, convicting words. He says, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at, that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I don't know about you, but I hear those words and, and they're deeply convicting and sobering. Peter declares salvation is found in no other name. That's the truth, the proclamation of Scripture. That salvation is found in no other name but Jesus. So two, two things are declared. That the power... The authority comes from Jesus. It's His power. It's His authority. And that salvation is found in His name and His name alone. What is it that the disciples exhibit? It's so important for us to remember who these two guys are, Peter and John. Not highly educated, blue-collar fishermen. Both kind of hotheads. Peter, we know just recently... I mean, he often spoke before he engaged his brain, it seems, as you read through the Gospels. Peter was always there with an answer. And Jesus said to the disciples, you're going to fall away. And Peter's like, not me. And Jesus said, well, you're going to actually deny knowing me three times. And he's like, no way. And like a couple hours later, hey, you were with Jesus. I don't know him. Three times. John and his brother James, when Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, they came to a town in Samaria that didn't welcome Jesus. Remember what they asked for? Hey, Jesus, should we call down fire from heaven? Just burn them up? I mean, these are the guys, Peter and John. The religious elites 
recognize that these guys are ordinary. I mean, if you and I ever go, like, who am I? I'm just, like, I'm just ordinary, un unschooled. That's exactly what the religious leaders, the authorities, the educated ones, the 70 men in Israel with the most authority and most education, they look and they see these guys and they go, these guys are ordinary. They, they haven't even been to, to seminary. Yet they recognized something. They, they recognized, they saw courage. It's not what they would have expected. In a moment like this, when guys like that were pulled before this great authoritative body, they would not expect courage. They would expect fear. They would expect trembling before them. The text says they took note that these men had been with Jesus. They'd been with Jesus. They'd been with him for three years, but they'd been with the resurrected Jesus. We know that. They had encountered Jesus on this side of the grave, and, and, and they're, they're, they're full of courage. Peter and John exhibit courage, a courage rooted not in who they were. Like, understand, this is not innate to them. It's not like, oh, these guys, they're just they're men of courage. No, that's not what's going on here. This is not some natural quality or characteristic of Peter and John. It is a courage that comes from Jesus. It is a courage that comes from being with Jesus. It is a courage that comes from being with the resurrected Jesus. When Jesus was arrested, the disciples all ran away. When Jesus was killed, they thought everything was over. They, they went and hid themselves behind locked doors in fear. And then they encountered Jesus alive again, and something was changed. Question three, what do they face? The Sanhedrin, this crew of religious authorities, have no clue how to deal with this problem. They can't deny the healing. The guy's standing there, jumping up and down in front of them. There's, there's no denying this. And so they send Peter and John out of the room so they can confer with one, each, one, with one another. And it, they're, they're really at a loss. They, they want to stop this Jesus thing. That's the whole reason they, they instigated Jesus' crucifixion. And here things are ballooning. They don't know what to do. They, they call them back in and they warn them, don't talk about Jesus anymore. They threaten them, we're going to do stuff to you. So don't. But they, they, they don't know what to do. They don't know how to punish them, so they let them go. These followers of Jesus, and not just Peter and John, but those who put their trust in Jesus, for them, the, the cross of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ, is just a matter of a number of weeks earlier, still fresh in their minds. They recognize this opposition. They are hearing these threats and warnings. We know that they face real danger. We know that the 11 disciples of them, with the exception of John here in our text, all of the followers of Jesus will lose their lives. They'll be put to death because of their proclamation of Jesus. And John will be exiled to the island of Patmos where God will give him a vision. Our book of Revelation this is not theoretical trouble, theoretical danger. 
It was real. Soon they will see Stephen stoned to death. John's brother, James, will be killed by Herod. Not too far in the future. They face threats. They face danger. They face great opposition. Stop talking about Jesus. Don't rock the boat or else something's going to happen to you. It'll, it'll be uncomfortable. Question four, how do they respond? This is perhaps the most important thing I want to draw your attention to this morning. In verse 24, when they hear this, the, the, Peter and John are released and they go back to their people, to the believers we know now, numbering in the thousands. They go back in verse 24, when they hear this, they, they tell them the threats, they tell them the warnings they've heard. When the people, when they hear this, they raise their voices together in prayer to God. How do the believers respond? They prayed. They prayed. They, they pray Psalm 2. Some of you who were with us through our series in the Psalms might remember that prayer in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and plot in vain? Why do people oppose what you're doing, God? God says, I have installed my king. I have installed my Messiah, Jesus. We know that is proclaimed already in Psalm 2. And so all people are called to serve the Lord, to come before him in trembling. They pray Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? They declare in prayer the sovereignty of God, that he is the creator of all things, and he even worked through the sin of people, through the crucifixion of Jesus, that these people did this evil thing, but it was according to God's will that Christ's death wasn't some accident, that this was God's intention, that through his death, all could come to faith in him and, and receive salvation. And they pray and they ask God to give them boldness. Listen to verse 29. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. If I ask you, what is the source of Christian boldness? What is the source of boldness as we seek to live on mission for those who don't know Jesus? I want you to know this, that boldness comes from God through prayer to God in Jesus' name. This is not some innate quality. This is not some characteristic that, you know, some of us are bold and some of us aren't. None of us can go, I'm just ordinary, unschooled, and timid. No, we see God's people praying, declaring God's sovereignty, and asking God for boldness. And God pours out His Spirit. And His Spirit enables them to speak boldly and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the Word of God boldly. And I want you to know, this isn't the only place where we find this. If you turn to the last chapter of the book of Ephesians, Paul, the Apostle Paul, this guy who wrote half the New Testament inspired by the Spirit, he, he asks the Ephesians, he asks his readers to pray for him, for boldness. Listen to what he says. Pray also for me that whenever I speak words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Paul, the apostle Paul, we think of him as this great hero of the faith. He's saying, pray that I might have boldness. Pray that I might do this without fear. Because left to himself, he's not this bold guy. 
He's filled with fear, just like you and I can be filled with fear at the prospect of proclaiming Christ. And so the church prays, give us boldness, make us bold. Paul says, pray for me that I might speak fearlessly. We need to understand this, brothers and sisters, that boldness, the boldness we envision our lives being characterized by is not something that we drum up inside. It's not something innate. It's something we cry out to the Lord for. We say, God, pour out your spirit. Make us bold. Make me bold. Give me courage. Help me to bear witness for you. This is not something we do once. This is something we need to do over and over and over again daily as we leave our homes, as we walk into our schools, students, as you go into your places of work, as we go to the store. Jesus, make me bold. Pour out your Spirit. Give me eyes to see. Give me the words I need. Give me, give me eyes to see and to remember the truth that salvation is found in no other name but your name. I, I, don't, I don't want this this morning to be some pep talk. Me trying to motivate you. I certainly don't want it to be me trying to twist your arm and make you feel guilty about something. I want you to see. I want you to see. The boldness we need, the boldness we want to live out is a boldness that comes from God and we need to seek Him in prayer. So let me ask this. Are we a praying people? This isn't about inducing guilt, but I just want the Spirit of God to move in our hearts. Are we a praying people? I said a couple weeks ago that prayer is the, the acknowledgement of our helplessness. Prayer is recognizing that what we can't do, we can't produce, we Jesus says in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. Prayer is acknowledging that, that we can do nothing. No matter what we try, no matter what we aim to do, that, that apart from God, we can do nothing. And so we need to pray, God, give us boldness. God, pour out your spirit. It's your power. It's your authority. It's, it's boldness that comes from you. You are the source, Jesus. And we need to be a people who are people of prayer. Not only us, but the church across Canada. We need to be people seeking Jesus' face for the sake of the lost, those who do not have the hope of Christ. And so are we a praying people? When we have prayer summits, is this place filled with us on our faces before the Lord, crying out, Lord, give us boldness. Give us eyes to see. Give us a heart for the lost. Help us to see what you see. We can't do this by digging in a little deeper or finding this within us. We are not the source of our own boldness. The boldness comes from the Spirit of God. We are invited to do what God's people did, to pray, to cry out to the Lord, to ask Jesus to make us bold, to give us boldness so that we can speak, so that we can live out this call to mission with boldness and courage and without fear. And it's, it's a prayer that we need to pray daily, moment by moment. Jesus is the source. Jesus is the source. We need to look to Him for His power. We need to look to Him 
for that courage, for that boldness. We need to look to Him to guide us on the mission that we have been given. I want to conclude just, you found on your chairs a little card. This is one tool, one thing that that I want to encourage you to make use of. It's put out by Alpha. It's called the Luke 1102 prayer. And in Luke 11:2, Jesus says, the, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. And so what they are encouraging you to do with this card, what I want to challenge you to do is to set an alarm on your phone at 11.02 each day, and that you would pray that prayer, that God would raise up leaders, that God would also raise us up, that he would give us boldness. And on the back of the card, there's a spot for you to write down the names of three people in your world, fellow students, fellow co-workers, neighbors, maybe the girl you buy groceries from. Write down their names and commit to praying. I will pray at 11.02 each day when my phone reminds me. I will pray for boldness. I will pray boldly to God for their salvation, and I will pray that God would make me bold. I will look to Him for this. This is just a a tool that can help us individually to be men and women of prayer. And, And I want to encourage you to use it. Take that up. Take up that challenge. Let us be a people who are growing in prayer, growing as prayers, growing as those who look to Jesus, the source of all authority, the source of all power, the source of all courage and boldness. Let's cry out to him for a fresh outpouring of his spirit, not just once, not just now, because we walk through our vision and mission, but that we would pray this regularly. God, make us bold. What might God do through us? Not because we're special. We can be ordinary people, blue-collar wrong side of the tracks. We can be like Peter and John. We, it's not about us being special. It's about crying out to God for outpouring His Spirit to move in us. My prayer is that God would move in our hearts, that He would convict us of our prayerlessness, that He would move us to seek Him in prayer daily, moment by moment, that we would pray boldly for the lost in our world, that we would pray for boldness ourselves, that God would give us boldness to proclaim in word and in deed the hope that is found in Christ. Amen.